I scraped the sentiment from five different podcasts previewing the AFC North and all gushed about the most unlikable team in the NFL. Are we also sipping the brown Kool-Aid? Few liked the Bengals last summer. We pounded the table on buying the dip. But this summer, there are way more believers. Are we still buying the rip? We're searching for Alpha in the AFC North. Let's hit the opening bell. It's 9, 12 p.m. in New York City. This is Alphabets. I'm Deep Value Better with Throw the Damn Ball, Judah Fortgang, and our guest this week, Andy Molitor, who needs no introduction. Andy, glad to have you on the show. There's some fun things to talk about because there's a lot of good what-ifs, and the FC North is what we did this week, so it's fresh in my mind, and you talk about your sentiment, and I don't know how you're doing that, scraping stuff with like language bots and all kinds of mm-hmm, magical mm-hmm. things that I don't fully understand. But I feel like I gushed on all four teams because there's just so much upside for everybody, and you can't all walk through the door at once, and it's hard. There's so many good teams in the AFC. I wish that we just had a 16-team playoff. The other unanimous takeaway from a lot of previews is that everyone thinks this is the best division in football. So let's get in to the 2023 win total futures, the Pittsburgh Steelers at eight and a half at the bottom, but heavily juiced to the over minus 140 Browns at nine and a half, heavily juiced to the under big adjusted, more like nine Ravens at 10 and a half, even Bengals 10 and a half juiced to the over. Judah, what are you thinking here? It's going to be Ravens alt under nine and a half. I might even push this to eight and a half. I think, Andy, to your point, this is such a good division, and I think it's kind of being taken for granted. Like, oh, the Ravens are going to be good. They have massive questions on the defensive side of the ball. Absolutely no pass rush, some weak corners. They've been floating on reputation alone, I think. Similar questions on the offensive side, how this offense will look without Greg Roman. We'll get more into that, but in a division that will be so tough, I think that the Ravens are probably the odd man out. Once you start getting into these double-digit win totals, there's so many more things that can go wrong than can go right. Like you said, the defense might not be all that good. Then you put a lot of pressure on this new OC with Lamar coming back off that injury again and a brand-new wide receivers room with Bateman not really having played at all after graduating from Minnesota. It's one I don't hate at all because I looked at that with all these teams, like just worst cases because the win totals are just so high. Well, and plus you guys forgot the most important piece of information, which is that Lamar Jackson sucks. (laughs) (laughs) You stole it from me, Judah. The alt under for the Ravens was my alphabet as well, primarily due to the fact that, I mean, this is a super tough division. There's so much uncertainty and all these prices are super high. When you're priced at 10 and a half games, you can't have so many question marks to your point, it's very easy for things to go wrong for any team, but I think it's even easier for things to go wrong when there's already so many question marks. The wide receivers, Odell Beckham has not played for over a year, and he's, it's not even like he took a break or whatever. I mean, he's coming back from an ACL, and wide receivers drop off like that. In one season, Bateman can't stay healthy. We just assume Flowers is automatically going to be good, but one thing that they could rely on in past seasons was that defense. 
this year, that doesn't seem to be the case. So all under nine and a half Ravens, that's my alphabet. What's yours, Andy? It's the freaking Kool-Aid. And, you know, I looked at... The brown Kool-Aid? Yeah, how to approach some of these teams. And it has to be the bigger numbers. I'm taking low risk, low reward in the Browns. I'm betting them to win the Super Bowl. It's Ooh. been... It's not like you're bringing an inexperienced quarterback into the playoffs. So if they do make the playoffs, you get a home game, you get maybe two home games. That's a nice home field too, having that outdoor cold weather stadium. He has played three playoff games when he was younger. It's really hard to erase what we saw the last six games of the season where it was like, oof, he's just, this is not good. He looks super rusty. But it, honestly, this is a better offensive line than he probably had a lot of those years. It's better skill position players. I know the running backs don't matter, but Nick Chubb is probably the best running back in the league. There's a lot going right on paper. And that, I mean, that's kind of the case for a couple of these teams. You can say the same thing about Pittsburgh, but if I'm betting on the Browns to overachieve, to hit their win total, to make the playoffs, it has to go pretty right with Watson. And if it goes pretty right with Watson, they're live to win several playoff games. Yeah, that's why so many people are enamored with the Browns because they look so sexy on paper. Mm -hmm. And if this can be 2019 Watson or when Watson's accuracy was hitting 70%, yeah, maybe that does come together. But that that's a huge question. And I'm not as optimistic on the Watson element, but when we look at the 2022 EDP range of outcomes, looking at what these teams' volatility profiles look like, we can see the Ravens and the Browns perfectly overlapping with one another, put together the same range of performances, and then a pretty deep separation between the Bengals and the Steelers. So anything from you on this one, Judah? Yeah, when the Bengals made the Super Bowl. There's a question of like, oh, this Bengals offense so explosive, but they lack that consistency drive to drive. Uh, and what this graph is kind of illustrating is actually they were one of the most consistent and dominant teams and earned drive points is getting at right how well you earn your points on a drive. It's about consistency, repeatability, which is something that the Bengals did exceptionally well. And this is the reason why they are such a hot commodity this offseason. Yeah, our drive quality model will be something we'll be citing over and over again. And our model tries to look through realized outcomes on the field on a drive-by-drive -drive basis and quantify how much each drive was worth. How many points did they earn on that drive, irrespective of whether they actually cashed it in and scored a touchdown or not. And so use this as an x-ray and see through final scores, see through superficial outcomes and to make better, more accurate future predictions. And so when we look at the Steelers 2022 earned drive points, looking at this from an offense and a defensive perspective, and you can use it as a proxy, thinking about it similarly as EPA, but encourage anyone to read our note on drive quality and earned drive points on portfoliokings.com. And you'll see that it's much more predictive than EPA, especially for a team level statistic. And when we see the Steelers here, a, a great defense, but only a few times during the season were they able to put together a decent offensive performance. Yeah. And I think for a, a team with an eight and a half win total, there must be some kind of built in assumption that this offense is going to get better. With that said, they also are one of the teams that have a massive discrepancy in their first half versus second half 
EDP, and that's not shown here, but they were right around league average the second half, which is when Kenny Pickett started to get starts. So maybe that's kind of the sample that's more worthwhile looking at for the, the Steelers is kind of that league average offense. But if we were to look at 2022 in its totality, this was a pretty bad offense and, and okay to good defense. How that plays out in 2023 is one of the main questions. Yeah, they really did look a lot better in the second half, but they won a bunch of close games. Like they weren't that good. And on paper, the defense looks terrifying in spots. So high hopes, but I'm not a big picket guy yet. I have to be sold. Yeah, and there weren't a lot of believers in the Steelers last offseason, despite Mike Tomlin's repeated success. And it rhymes a little bit this offseason. The Steelers went 9-8, and 10-6. and six. ATS, a $100 better, betting Steelers money lines and spreads, won over $800. But to your point, Andy, this team maybe didn't perform as well on the field as their record indicates. Another custom metric that we have is Pythag 2.0, which takes that traditional Pythag equation, but tweaks it instead of looking at points for and points against as a key metric feeding that equation. We look at what we call active points looking at the total points this team scores in excess of betting market expectations or gives up in excess of betting market expectations. There's another note that we released put up on our website that Pythag 2.0 is more predictive, is a better assessment of true underlying fundamentals of a team than the traditional Pythag. And if you really stop and think about it, it makes also intuitive sense because you're looking at betting market expectations betting market expectations price in anything that's going on from a week to week basis, whether it's it's a change in quarterback or it's a weather element or the key injury. And so by using active points or again, points in excess of betting market expectations, we price a lot more information in to that assessment rather than Pythag, which is just looking at total points for and against. And Pythag 2.0 has the Steelers as winning less than seven games last your expectation is basically team totals and you're doing some comparison with that. Are you washing any of the garbage time, you know, like scooping scores and things like that, that aren't super indicative of how the team's playing drive quality model on their drive points. Definitely will. Sure. I like it though, because it tracks sentiment better than just, Oh, you, you won by one point. Like good. Yeah. I was like, well, it was 55, 54. Cause the way we like to evaluate games to triangulate, use different metrics, and not rely on any single metric to tell us what the truth of a game was. And one of those is our TWAM metric, which is time-weighted average margin. We look at what a team's lead or deficit was multiplied by the time they held that lead or deficit. And so exactly to your point, Andy, if there was a scoop and score, or especially at the end of the game, that would almost be completely priced out of this and this is the type of metric like when you have those types of games where it's close all the way up until like the last three minutes of the game and then there's like a bang bang score and the final score is oh this team won by 21 points it was actually very close the whole time 33 point fourth quarter yeah exactly the twam will give you a better assessment that this game was actually much closer That is a big nitpick of like when people are, oh, they were, you know, X and X in one possession games. Like, you know, four of those weren't really one possession games. There's a backup quarterback scoring a touchdown to put it within eight with like three seconds left. That doesn't count. Exactly. And that's why the farther you get away from a specific game as you go on to the season, because like 
you know, say that happened in week two, like when you're doing your week three analysis, you remember like, oh, I remember that week two. And I know to accommodate for that by week seven, you forgot about it. And you look back at just the final score that, oh yeah, they won by 15. And so these are the types of alternative data we like to use to help us more accurately price teams on a go forward basis. But looking at the Steelers power ranking volatility from last season, again, gives us a sense of how this team evolved over the course of the season. We can see the expectations were pretty low for them. Opened the season around 25th ranked from a market perception perspective and closed the season almost hitting a top 10 status. And we can see they're quite volatile. Their average power rank volatility on a week to week basis was plus or minus five and a half spots. Some of the highest volatility that we've seen. And even drive quality did not like the Steelers last season. We did not end up betting the Steelers too much, but I guess I'm happy to see this because this also speaks to what you're talking about, Andy, is even as the market started to buy more into the Steelers into the end of the season, our drive quality model kept the Steelers very, very low relative to the broader market consensus. Granted, there's probably some Mitch Trubisky elements in there, but what's pretty surprising to me- But he came in and he played pretty good that one time. I, I don't know if I can actually knock him last year in his limited time. The EPA on 10.1 when he played on the road versus Carolina. And they got the win, 24-16. They were three-point underdogs. The market hated them that week. Circa rank, 27th. The market like actually likes the Steelers quite often last year. We see a lot of green here from a Circa rank perspective. But that was the one week when Trubisky comes in. Like, oh yeah, can't ride with Mitch, and he comes through in the clutch. I was going to say, Andy, to your point about kind of the Steelers finish, I'm pretty shocked at how high they reach from a power ranking perspective. And these power ranks are from a bunch of different sources, from Imperdict, from Football Outsiders, from PFF, from ESPN. And we're looking at the consensus rank here, they're approaching a top 10 team. And I don't think anyone, even now, if you have high expectations, is thinking that the Steelers are a top 10 team. But that's kind of the taste that's left in one's mouth, partly because of winning their last four games which is important to keep in mind and keep perspective for the base rate looking ahead. Six wins, six covers out of the last seven games. There was some, you know, correlation causation issues with the the TJ Watt numbers too. It was like, oh, they were like eight and two. And yeah, but he missed the Eagles game. He missed the Bills. Like you're probably still not winning those games. I'm glad you brought that up, Andy. If you go to the next slide, something stood out to me was that the opposing quarterbacks for the Steelers last year were dreadful granted they had that crazy like five interception game in week one with joe burrow and they beat him but the rest they've got mac jones jacoby Brissett, zach wilson josh allen who destroyed them tom brady to attack of iloa hurts who destroyed them andy dalton or matt ryan marcus mariota tyler huntley sam darnold Derek carr on the last legs in in vegas at huntley and watson this is a team that was really propped up by the opposing quarterbacks and they basically got destroyed by any capable they lucked into Burrow's like worst turnover game of his career. Otherwise, when they faced good quarterbacks, it was bad. Yeah. One of those things to, to pay attention to next, like how often defenses can be propped up by weak opposing quarterbacks. And we're building some stuff to kind of account for that. But that's the issue sometimes in taking these counting statistics or full season stats like EPA or something that's missing the context. And when we look at the offseason changes, when I was actually putting this together, Allen Robinson last year's preseason darling everyone was super pumped about the possible 
synergies between Allen Robinson and Matthew Stafford and, and things like this. And that turned out to be a total dud. So just another asterisk to keep in mind when you get too wrapped up in anything that's going on in the preseason. Yeah, you can only be downgraded. And to your point too, that end of game scenario and you forget about it after six weeks. I started doing that a little bit more last year and now I'm doing it with preseason because I'm finding myself opening four tabs to look at preseason games from last year just to mm -hmm. get a feel for how some of these coaches are treating these preseason games. And I'm making all these notes for preseason games now. I'm like, God, why am I not taking extensive notes during the season too? So you can go back and look and be like, what actually happened to this game that I watched and completely mm -hmm. forgot because my brain's too full of other shit. Yeah, that's why we try to add different contextual elements to how mm -hmm. we try to remind ourselves of these past games for that type of reason, because oftentimes you can't remember it. And like one thing that I want to do potentially next season or even for this season as the season goes on, because I had flirted with it in the past, but was a grabbing like a major headline for each week so it puts you yeah. back into that state of mind. I hate to call it a rabbit hole because usually rabbit holes are, oh, I'm looking at who the monarchs were in Spain in like the 1700s. And for some reason <laughs> I'm on Wikipedia for an hour, but I've done a lot of that with just prepping. I've started to look back and I, I realized like I've spent an hour looking at like the ends of games from last year. Like, oh man, I completely forgot what they did here and how this game got bottled in the third quarter. Yeah. Definitely. I like the headline. That's is, nice. Is there anything from you guys for the Steelers offseason that you think is notable? So Allen Robinson, Patrick Peterson, Keanu Neal. I mean, this is like a litany of players who used to be good, but are still named brand. Lost Devin Bush, Miles Jack. Devin Bush never turned into what no. thought he was going to be, but so not a lot of movement. Brett, to answer your question, the most perplexing part of the Steelers offseason was not finding a new offensive coordinator in Matt Canada. <laughs> Looking at the percentage of throws into open versus tight windows, which is in some part quarterback and some part scheme. But what's particularly interesting about the, the Steelers was that both Kenny Pickett and Mitch Trubisky, we have the rare case of kind of a decent sample of both quarterbacks playing, were like way higher in the percentage of throws to tight windows at like 20%, which is gotta be scheme you know scheme related considering both of them were kind of in the exact same spot and it was way worse than everyone else in the nfl which i think is a kind of an anecdote that, that captures the issues with the, the steelers offense in the Mac Canada. i will also say just kind of looking at the defense patrick peterson actually i think had a resurgence last year we know coverage is kind of unstable in that way if he can repeat his year last year actually graded as one of the best man separation corners by some of my numbers surprising i would not I would not exactly bank on that happening again. And I think this is kind of like a, a stars and scrubs type defense. Like TJ Watt and Alex Highsmith were great. Casey Hayward's been a stud in the league forever. Minka Fitzpatrick's great. And the rest, they're weak links. People don't talk about Highsmith enough. He's sneaky. He was awesome. You know, some of that was Watt missing time and maybe you had more opportunities, but you could pose that as a negative too. You're going to have more chip blocks. You're going to have more yeah, people exactly. focused on taking you out of the play. And Peterson too, like I'm hopeful because I just kind of like the guy. He didn't get a lot of man reps last year, so the sample isn't as big as what he'll see if he's starting outside here. Drew's theory on cornerbacks is like, you have it because you're fast, nasty, young, and mean, and then after a while you lose that just naturally, 
And if oh, you yeah. don't learn a bunch of tricks and sneaky tips and turn into the savvy guy that can be a little more, hey, I can play safety, hey, I can be a slot guy too. And if you don't learn all that, that those are the guys that are out of the league. The cornerbacks oh, who make it to the Patrick Peterson level are, they've figured it out. So I'm hopeful for them. Yeah. When you rely so heavily on your athleticism, your speed, your agility, your ability to pivot, change direction, those are the first things that go. And so, yeah, oh, you yeah. have to evolve your game into different strengths. But yeah, no, I'm definitely cheering for them. We have the Steelers here as basically the worst team in the NFL from week five, essentially to about week 11 before it started to turn up. When we look at the 2023 schedule, anything stick out to you guys here? It's ostensibly, you know, ranked 25th through futures implied rankings, but you know, we kind of throw the asterisk on there all the time. You know, we did this analysis in off season, Bengals last year, Beginning of the year, we're supposed to have the sixth hardest schedule, end up having the 16th easiest. Browns were supposed to have the eighth easiest schedule, ended up having the seventh hardest. Ravens, 11th easiest projected, end up having the 10th hardest. Steelers were supposed to have the fourth hardest schedule, and it ended up being middle of the road. So you could almost throw out strength of schedule what you just spit there it's the same thing every year in every preview it's like hey it was supposed to be tough and that was <laughs> yeah. like the 27th hardest schedule this is every year we should stop even talking about strength of schedule at all it's like hey you're right. playing an nfl schedule this year that's it if anything it's exploitable potentially when you think something is potentially being mispriced yeah. and that strength of schedule is a component of the broader market using that as signal when uh it's not very tough first three out of five games, Niners, Browns, Ravens into their bye, and then close on a very tough last three games. Bengals in Seattle, and then at Baltimore. They were priced at seven and a half last year. Now they're priced a full game higher than that. We all know like the Mike Tomlins never finished the season under 500, but I mean, if you want to be really bullish on this team, you have to believe in, you know, Patrick Peterson being able to play a bunch of man or a rookie coming in and doing that, playing on the outside or both. And if the secondary isn't playing well, it can actually stymie your strengths in the pass rush because teams will just get the ball out faster if there's a ton of early separation. There's a reason they're fourth in the division, man. Cleveland Browns, the most unlikable team in the NFL. Miles Garrett on one side, Deshaun Watson on the other. I liked it when he swung the helmet at the guy. I enjoy things like that. <laughs> what was that Mason Rudolph? When yeah. they kept switching oh, yeah. quarterbacks that year. Yeah, they might be unlikable with the you know, full on sex offender and <laughs> Miles Garrett headhunting people, but I'll try to uh, separate myself from that. Cleveland. Man, you were right. They're the most unlikable. And also, at we least a, they're diversifying the criminals on their teams. So. <laughs> yeah. We have a very simple rule. We like the people who make us the most money. And if the Browns are our money makers, we're going to have to like them this year. Yep, hold your nose and make the trade. We see the Browns smack dab in the middle there with the Ravens as a league average offense, a league average defense when we looked at earned drive points. When we look at their power rank volatility over the course of the season, up and down over the course of season. Again, Brissett, I think, surprised people a little bit at the beginning of the season. There were such low expectations for him, but then he would put in some dud games. Seven-day rolling volatility was plus or minus three and a half spots. 
finished ATS last year, eight and nine, seven and 10 straight up, $100 better, made no money betting on their money line and spread. So just totally average. Pythag 2.0 had them at eight and a half wins. So totally average. Their active points is almost zero. Anything from you guys on the Browns from last year? Yeah, Jacoby Brissett and the Browns offense produced at a top 10 clip when they were there, at least by our metrics. And even our drive quality kind of suggests that. Obviously, no one's saying that's going to happen if Jacoby Brissett played with them. Now, it is interesting to note that Watson struggled. It has been talked at nauseum about whether you know Watson will turn the corner in 2023. But I think the important question to ask is, can the delta between what the offense was last year, which produced at a top 10 clip with Jacoby Brissett, can Watson come in and replace what was already a pretty good offense, yet they still had middling results? which I think is kind of a different framing of the question. It was a weird inconsistency with Brissett, but at the same time, even when you didn't look at the numbers, you felt like he was doing an admirable job. And admirable, I yes. Because he was always just a placeholder. It's hard to evaluate what they did last year because they were always going to bring in Deshaun. Honestly, I don't think there was a scenario where they weren't going to play on those games. If they were in it, they out of it. And he looked pretty rough. He doesn't look that great in camp, man. I've seen some videos. I know there's a lot of shading towards whoever posts a video. It's like, you know, Kenny Pickett for life. And it's like, well, you cherry picked the shit out of it. Honestly, the camp Twitter people, it's worse than the last election. And people were so <laughs> mean to each other during the election. The camp people are just horrible. Well, cause it's max delusion. How can you like your team this much that you're so mean to people? No one could prove you wrong in the preseason because everyone's yeah. 0 and 0, you know? And so this is where everyone has like the max conviction in their delusions. It's rough out there right now. Mm -hmm. So the Browns close that, that five games with Deshaun Watson scoring 10 points, 13 points, 10 points, 14 points, and then put up one 24 point game versus Washington. Yeah. I mean, you spent the money. They're like in a weird, they're in that same boat that Denver is like, you can't like just sell this. So if this doesn't work out, it feels awful bad up in the mistake on the lake. But I think the numbers are a little too long for the amount of upside they have with this roster. If he is even 80% of what we saw at his peak in like, what, 2018, 2019? That'd be good enough. It's good enough to win this division. It's good enough to win playoff games. And I'd like the upside of sitting there in the AFC title game with like a 35 to 1 to win the Super Bowl on this team. The other thing yeah. why I'm not too optimistic on the Browns is because I'm also kind of reading in as a proxy of decision-making and judgment around this organization to make a levered bet on this person, take the reputational damage that comes along with it, even if you win with yeah. him. Whereas like in your parallel, like the Broncos, oh, you, well, you just look stupid. You know, you made a really bad bet, but you know, I mean, at least it wasn't like, it's not vicious, you know? Whereas this is like, man, if Watson doesn't play well, you look stupid for sure, but also you look corrupt and immoral. Oh, you, you and sold, yeah, you sold your morals down the river. Yeah. And it's funny too, there was a meeting where, you know, there had to be a meeting at the highest level where the words just came out of someone's mouth. Like, hey, we think he probably did all this and we don't care. What's it worth to have a franchise quarterback? Because, and to be fair, it doesn't happen that often 
that you can get a 26-year-old franchise quarterback like this. This shit happens once a decade. It, it had to be a tough decision, but man, I wouldn't have liked to have been the guy responsible for that. Man, we are going to take it in the media here for ever, honestly. Forever. I mean, even if you win a Super Bowl, all right, there will be some people who forget, certainly Browns fans, oh, but there's yeah. always going to be an asterisk next to it. I don't know about that. Yes, I don't think that's absolutely. true. I don't think that's true. People, uh, people still talk have, about the Ray Lewis stuff and the Browns. That's what I, I was about to actually say. You know, people are not talking about Ray Lewis. We seem to have forgotten, you know, Tyreek Hill has done some really heinous things. You know, there was a well, tweet today, like Ray Rice was at camp. And I, I, I just yeah. quick, I'm like, I'm going to scan the comments. I'm like, have we forgotten about the video? And nobody brought it up. I'm like, holy shit, I guess time heals all wounds. I mean, if they overachieve right away, it's still pretty fresh. There's going to be articles written about at what cost yeah. for, for this Super Bowl ring, tainted ring. The thing about, about Watson, I think it's particularly interesting, is that I've been doing a lot of research into like scrambling. And by scrambling, I don't mean plays that were runs that did not result in sacks. I mean, anytime a quarterback kind of attempted a scramble, there should be a note on that soon. Tom Watson was one of the best in the NFL. I think that jives with anyone's eyeball test of Watson, you know, working out of structure, buying a couple seconds, throwing a ball deep to Will Fuller. That was kind of like the MO of the Watson Texans years, especially when they had a bunch of success. And Watson was awful last year. By far the worst quarterback in the NFL on these plays. He took a sack on like 25% of these scrambles, which is way, way, way higher than the league average. What's interesting here is that perhaps what happens kind of when your timing's a little bit messed up, you haven't played in two years. Is that something that's going to regress? It's a stat that's actually relatively stable year over year, but that's the type of thing when you put in the context of Watson, is that something that maybe he'll get better? And he's like, as he's have a full, also mind you that like Watson was not practicing with the team. That's something I'm going to be monitoring early in the season because what made Watson so special was not his play in the pocket. It was like outside of Shrucker and he was so bad, which was such an aberration from his career norm. Does he have that same magic outside of structure when he's scrambling? And that's a place I'm going to bet live. And, and Andy, to your point, I think it's you got to be looking at the right tail here. That was the knock on him too. Even in Houston, was he he'd run into sacks? Oh, absolutely. But but I people, think the, I think the Texans gave up like willing, 80 yeah. sacks like two years in a row, which is which is fine. But is yeah, fine people if, were willing to forgive it because of you, you take the good, you take the bad. Because yeah, he'd run into some sacks, but he'd also create some magical plays, like you said, out of structure. And it was kind of like, well, these these two things come together. But I hope. I guess for the sake of my bet too, that he's really taking this seriously because, and this is crass and I feel bad for, you know, victims of sexual assault, but the quickest way to make people forget about the fact that you are a criminal is to win a bunch of fucking football games. Like just go and out make there, money. go out there and have the best year of your career. Suddenly people, are, you know, that will go away a little quicker, but I will bail out so fast. So if he looks like garbage, because there's no upside if he doesn't. The the other thing that we don't have here is that the Browns actually changed their coordinator in the offseason to go to Jim Schwartz. And this is a team who perennially had one of the best rosters in the NFL. Guys like Denzel Ward, Greg Newsome, Miles Garrett, and yet they continually underproduced on defense. Jim Schwartz has traditionally been a great coordinator. Will this defense actually live up to the talent? And the talent is undeniable. They've also made a bunch of moves on the defensive line. They signed Zardarius Smith. This is a ferocious defensive line. They have all the pieces to be a successful defense. I think Jim Schwartz can take this to 
become a much better unit than they've been in the past couple of years. That's something I'm really, really interested to see. Yeah, they wouldn't get Shelby Harris today. Like yesterday or something. Yeah, they're continuing to just pour stuff at this. Hey, we want to run our run defense, and when we stack a box, we want it stacked properly. So they went and added pieces to the front. Juan Thornhill's a nice fill-in, and I'm just really sold out on Clowney at this point. Like, that's probably a addition by subtraction. Losing Hunt sucks, but... It's you can't have two great running backs, I guess. You just you, you can't just, have that many criminals. I mean, you he, I was gonna say, yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, it would be one thing if like Mixon had signed up here instead. You know what the last name of that girl he hit was? Molitor. No relation, oh. but probably some relation. But I read somehow, that. somehow, oh, some way. Like yeah, I feel exactly. like I should hate this guy more. Yeah, I mean, it's personal now. Now it is. Uh, and Elijah Moore, I don't know if do you guys have a take. I was. Well, I mean, lo- I was a lot of people are excited. Yeah, some people... You got another like guy with a bad attitude. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. People were pumped for him. I'm he, lukewarm, but I can be sold. He does not grade well in most of my underlying numbers that what that thinks of. Separation, even after the catch stuff, doesn't really pop in, in any metric. This should be kind of independent of quarterback play. Look, he's a young player. These guys can break out at any point. Yeah, there's I, a lot of optimism. Uh, like, yeah. the breakout guy, and I think it's kind of a, like... You know, shiny toy kind of thing, but I, I share your, your view. Luke lukewarm would be generous. So we're looking at the 2023 look ahead spreads for the Browns, but what is the structure of this offense going to look like? You took a flyer on Elijah Moore. You drafted Cedric Tillman. You have Amari Cooper. You have invested $200 million in your quarterback. Prior to this, the Browns have been very run-centric team. For ever since Stefanski's been head coach, they've ranked anywhere from 20th to 30th in early down pass rate. You have those great wide receivers, but this is a team that leaned heavily into using two tight end sets or two running back sets. Are they going to shift that methodology to playing more 11 personnel. We did start to see a little bit of a tick up in the Browns using 11 at the tail end of last year. So would be curious if we think that this offense is gonna change to accommodate Watson and maybe lean more into modern day football, despite having still one of the best running backs in the league. At a minimum, more 12 than 21, at least. I guess depends what you think of the backups, but at the strongest tight end room, but you still have some guys. Well, that's, that's a very strong point. Yeah. Like yeah. Putting two tight ends in and you only have half a good one. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what the tendency is. If they can be more tendency breakers this year and it's maybe, you know, I don't know if teams are actually this good at self-evaluation and introspection, but maybe it was always just like, hey, this is a weird year. We're not going to win. Do we really want to put a bunch of stuff on tape or should we just keep running the ball and see what happens? That. Right, reputation for the Browns' offensive line, top, top unit, uh, and they've kind of been that way with Stefanski. If you look closer at the numbers from last year, we kind of had some some warning signs that this unit is not going to be as strong. Joe Batonio is, is still an absolute stud, but Jedrick Wills didn't turn into the tackle he was supposed to be at. He was the 10th overall pick. He struggled at left tackle. Jack Conklin had some injuries. He took a major, major step back. We're looking at a bunch of the numbers I run with successful blocking, Vitaler's fine, and all of a sudden you've got a bunch of question marks. Their tackles are a little bit iffy. You combine that with Watson's tendency to hold on to the ball for too long. I'm not so sure they're going to be comfortable just letting it rip with Watson. They might have to mix in a bunch of those runs. Uh, granted, they probably should, assuming Nick Chubb doesn't fall off, a, fall off a cliff, as we have seen 
in the past, which is also worth mentioning. There's kind of an assumption that Nick Chubb is just going to continue to be elite as a running back, but he is reaching that carry threshold where running backs traditionally do decline. That is certainly a possibility, and that can happen very quick. But all of this is to say, because of the questions on the offensive line, you might need to run the ball more to keep defenses honest, and your hand might be forced. And there's an offensive line. They bring back all five starters. So and, that's and one of the reasons why a lot of people, but, but they can't stay on the field. If they're healthy, you have really good starters and probably the best offensive line coach in the league in old man Callahan. But a lot of it comes down to scheme too. I think the last thing on the Browns is just, I think you make a good point, Andy, about saying like, oh, there's very few opportunities to potentially ever get access to a 26-year-old Pro Bowl quarterback to get access to that inorganically without having drafted them. But even outside of obviously the unimpressive, to put it mildly, last five games from last year from Watson, there were already some skeptics even prior to that around the underlying talent of Deshaun Watson. So one of our buddies, Joe, who I don't know if you've seen him from time to time, Andy, on Twitter, he likes to... He, yeah. he likes to stir the pot, to, to put it nicely. But he does a lot of really good evaluative work on quarterbacks. He's like his own like little mini PFF for quarterbacks. And he is extremely bearish on Deshaun Watson, even prior to last year. Which is hard to square. Uh, but I guess the... the He's the, had some misses, but... Sir, you know. I've given up on quarterback evaluation. It's hard. Even the best miss, so... It very much is a head game, especially at quarterback. It's just like golf or kicking. It's certainly one of the most cerebral positions well, yeah, in, did, in all Have you watched the Johnny Manziel thing yet? I've only heard. He was good enough to be a starter in the league. He just didn't want to do it. And just stopped like, showing it to work, man. It's like, I don't think Kirk Cousins is all that good of a physical specimen, this yeah. gifted athlete that you've seen. That's why he's doing all these stupid, crazy things. He has to have all these tiny little incremental gains just to get him to be like the 10th best quarterback in the league. (laughs) That's why when you get those two things to go hand in hand, which Mm -hmm. very rarely it does, that's how you get a LeBron James or a Patrick Mahomes. That's when you get this explosion of talent. But to your point about questions about Watson, which is that because he's so reliant on talent as a, Andy, I'm glad you brought this up, as opposed to a Kirk Cousins who's so methodical and just, he does the same thing every single year. He's a pocket passer. He's not scrambling. He's not doing anything crazy. He's making his reads and making throws accurately. That's his game. It's capped to an extent. But Watson is so reliant on his talent. The distribution of outcomes is so wide. Because if something goes, if some part of his play, which because he's so reliant on his legs is incredible throwing arm and even that vision and ability to get out of sacks if something goes because it's so talent dependent the entire thing can kind of crumble and that's a stark contrast to a guy like tom brady or Kirk cousins or Derek carr or someone who's more stationary in his reads and in his play style yeah. i don't want to belabor the point of like the off-field issues for watson but especially at quarterback position it is about decision making judgment evaluation of upside downside risk is this worth it even though i want to do it to be able to process this like contextual information before actually pulling the trigger and i think we have demonstrable evidence that he can make bad decisions over and over and over again even when the thing that matters the most which is your well-being your freedom your reputation he's even to roll the dice with that i think it can be a relevant factor 
when you're trying to evaluate a quarterback on the field. It comes down to if the coaching staff gets him to buy in and work with the coaching staff and takes an active role in the game planning, I think we could have something. But there's also, it could just be over. I think you said it perfectly, Andy, before is when you're talking about how he has every incentive to put it all on the field and reframe the conversation about what defines Deshaun Watson. This is the best way, in fact, to put that fully behind him is to actually make a new story about yourself. And you could do that by just really excelling on the field. Uh, But that also means you have to connect those dots. And I don't think it's going to happen. The Baltimore Ravens, another team with another shitty quarterback. Right down the middle, right there with the Browns from an earned drive points perspective. A huge asterisk here, though, of course, because we saw, you know, Tyler Huntley and who was the other guy? Anthony Brown? Anthony Brown. Downtown yeah, Anthony, Anthony Brown. Brown. Who, you know, stepped Pro in the airport Tyler over Huntley. the last. Oh, that's true. <laughs> yes. I forgot about that. But yeah, the Ravens over the past couple seasons, you know, started off the season very strong, you know, eight and three, top of the conference. Jackson gets hurt. And then they have this carousel of quarterbacks that kind of always still remained relatively competitive down the stretch. They still ended up winning five games down the stretch. Still were able to cover from time to time despite the offense being very putrid. So, you know, a 10-9 game versus the Broncos, a 16-14 versus Steelers, 13-3 versus the Browns, 17, oh my God, 17-9 versus the Falcons, another 13-16 game versus Steelers. Truly ugly football from the Ravens, but still remain competitive. I speak to their coaching staff. And part of my evaluation of Lamar Jackson as like a franchise quarterback is just what has happened the last two years is the way he plays football and what his value add is to the game is based on him putting himself in very vulnerable situations over and over again to the point of where he can't play a full season. And I don't think his game is ever going to evolve into not having to rely on his legs, his pure athleticism, his speed, and all those factors, the first physical elements to start to go. And I think if there's ever a point in time, and maybe they're going to try to do it purposely this year, of having Jackson lean into being a traditional quarterback, not doing as many designed runs or even out of structure runs, and they try to dissuade him from doing that, to try to keep him on the field because now they've invested all this money into him, that that's going to backfire because he's not talented. He's a bad passer. He's inaccurate. And that is the biggest question and why I'm very uncertain on this team because what is the philosophy for the offense this year? I think he can do it a couple different ways. I'm willing to believe in that narrative that, hey, make an offense that's really tailored to his strengths. Don't make him make those sideline passes across the field into tight windows that he just can't do. Let him make the easy ones. Let him use his legs. Use it smartly. I guess I believe in Munkin, but I just don't know what the plan is. I don't know what the roadmap is. If everyone's healthy, maybe it it is just one of those narrow range of outcomes for this team. And they're going to be, hey, this is a double-digit win team that nobody takes serious in the playoffs because the offense isn't quite there. They definitely have upside. I've struggled with this one a little. I tried to talk myself into Lamar, Offensive Player of the Year, which that number sucks. We ended up just pivoting to Jalen Hurts, Offensive Player of the Year instead because it was a way better number. I like that way better. Yeah, I don't have a lot of 
strongly held opinions because I really have to see what this offense is going to be. So like you could say like, oh, a new OC, potentially a better OC introduces some new components that leverages Jackson's talents better. But at the same time, it's a new OC. It's a new yeah. system. And in fact, Lamar Jackson at least had the stability of having the same system. And now you have like no chemistry at wide receiver. You still have Mark Andrews, of course, but you have a new system with no chemistry with your top three wide receivers. It had like six games with Bateman, none with Flowers, none with Beckham. And I could definitely see Beckham throwing a hissy fit, passes get overthrown a few times, or he's not getting enough targets. And this could just unwind. Yeah, it's kind of where I'm at. I'm just going to keep reading camp reports and figuring out if you, know, you only what, get more bullets. Then. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> you have to wade through a mile of bullshit to find a little nugget of gold in those, but it's just tough. Like you said, the zero chemistry, barely played with any of these receivers outside of Andrews. Andrews is going to have to carry a heavy load and Bateman has to stay healthy and the flowers high pass to come through. I remember when Beckham was with the Browns and he was leaving the Browns, everyone basically thought he's a has been never materialized into what he could be. And then he had a flash there of only a handful of games with the Rams. People like forgot about those few years with the Browns all of a sudden. And like yeah, now are very like optimistic. It's, it's also a totally different scenario when you've got Cooper Cup putting up the maybe greatest wide receiver season in history. Like, yeah, defenses mm -hmm. are going to try and scheme to stop Cooper Cup. And this is when, you know, Beckham comes in like late in the season. Like, yeah, he's going to succeed. It's a totally different ballgame when you're probably the number one focus for a defense. I think what everyone's optimistic about the Ravens is because like, because they had like bottom bucket, terrible, no name receivers. Although again, the same thing could be had about like Mahomes, like Mahomes had Demarcus Robinson himself and was able so to this is, exploit. Yeah, Brad, this is, I think is actually the point and gets into a bunch of the research I was talking about earlier which is that these quarterbacks out of structure, actually your surrounding talent doesn't really matter so much because when you're working out of structure, the quarterback's essentially creating for themselves. And Lamar can have success because he's doing it all himself. Everything's happening after the play, extending the play, scrambling. I think the plan is that he's just gonna be a kind of standard pocket passer. That's the assumption I'm working with. Granted, I want to kind of see that all play out live, but now all of a sudden the weapons are gonna matter more. And I think we're kind of used to like, oh yeah, well, Lamar produced with terrible wide receivers, but that's not the same style of quarterback that he's going to be playing this year, where his receivers do matter more. All of these things don't really matter if Lamar's creating for himself. And that's the central question to me on offense. And as we've talked about there, there are a ton of question marks with the, the new system and a new way of playing. I'm honestly skeptical of basically all of the past data we have because I think defenses were so scared of the presence of a Lamar run. Eric Eager and, and Tage Seth did a bunch of really cool work about how linebackers move just at the presence of Lamar Jackson. Like the expectation of her running was so great. If defenses are not respecting the run because Lamar's running less, it changes the entire equation. There really are so many question marks there. It's like seeing play action before the snap. Like, exactly. You're already cheating on, on stuff that you haven't even seen yet. And you have to have that for him to be successful. I do have to say on on the Ravens, yeah, I think we gotta talk about this defense. And I'm like, frankly shocked that this is being talked about as a even okay unit. Looking at this pass rush, I think it, it's gotta be one of the worst in the league, if not the worst in the league. Their number one pass rusher, at least by like pressure percentage, you can choose whatever efficiency metric you want, is Adafo Owe, who was 130th ranked last year. This is a absolutely dreadful pass rush. Uh, they're, they're giving refs to 
Brandon Stevens, who graded out for me as the worst cornerback at the catch point. He was a disaster in separation. Marlon Humphrey has really struggled outside of the slot where he will almost certainly not be playing. The coverage unit's bad. The pass rush is god-awful. But Kyle Hamilton's great shirt. Maybe they'll be able to stop the run a bit, which honestly might hurt them if teams are going to, to pass more against them. I don't see a case for how this defense is good. This team, I think, is floating on reputation at this point, especially defensively. And if Rokon Smith gets banged up or anything like that, that would compound that problem big time. Honestly, I think you're going to have like a Titans problem last year where like the run defense is good because... Rokon Smith can stop the run. Patrick Queen can stop the run. Kyle Hamilton's awesome at stopping the run. And great. Teams are going to be like, okay, if we can pass on you with ease because you're not going to be able to get home and we'll just expose your corners. Teams will just pass against them. Passing more efficient than running. And if they're passing the ball more, that's a disaster for the Ravens. I like the coordinator. I like what he's doing because it was a lot of slapping band-aids on and making things work. You can see a bit of an inflection point when they got Roquan. Like Kyle mm-hmm. Hamilton, go look at his stats pre and post Roquan that made a big difference for not only him, but the, the defensive backs, especially the safeties and what they were able to play. They improved a little, but you need to see some ascension in the defensive secondary. And it's a lot to ask. We see the only thing that held them together down the stretch last year was their defense. Cause they could barely score double digits. So to your point, you know, like that it's riding on reputation alone. And there's so many questions at office. As we've walked through this team, I'm even more bearish on the Ravens than I was at the beginning. When you don't have the personnel, you have to do a scheme. And on defense, that means a lot of misdirection, a lot of blitzing, disguising coverage. And that's right. Like, I think they did a good job of that. And that's why this defense was okay. It's just how much scotch tape can you throw on this thing? before it falls apart it just takes a couple of really weak links to to kind of crumble this so i just don't get in i see a lot of raven super bowl tickets floating around on twitter which is a sell signal in itself all right bengals looking at their earned drive points and we see them as one of the best teams in the league and that was despite starting the season off very clunky we were kind of joking about last week we got kicked out of survivor um, week two versus the Cowboys and Cooper Rush. Did you play Survivor last year, Andy? Yeah. Were you in the Circus Survivor? No, God, no. I'm so bad at Survivor. <laughs> I just, I, just, oh no, I used the Niners versus the Bears. That's a that was another tough yeah, one. Yeah, that was. I'm like, oh, uh, it's raining. Two like very anomalistic <laughs> like outcomes <laughs> right away. I had the Colts the year a couple years ago versus the Jags. I'm like full Jim Cramer on like I should just be posting my Survivor picks and people could be hammering the other money lines. All I have to say is this is a Circa and Survivor conversation disguising really as a conversation about strength of schedule. Look, I will say though, and this gets us back, you know, to, to our slide here, at least, you know, draft quality validated what was to come. And I was I was high on the Bengals from week one and obviously in week two, and then they kind of drive quality was a leading indicator there, especially week six, week seven, week eight, you know, way ahead of the market. And it took until week 16 and a game against the Patriots for, for the market to catch up. I realize, as, as we said at the open, that this Bengals team is legit. Yeah, what do you do when your quarterback doesn't have much time in the pocket? You put him further back and like pistol and shotguns did kind of work to an extent. And we're having the same problem. Like the guy's never had a training camp. Still just like a top five quarterback anyway. It doesn't matter. But there's some important games early on. If this bleeds into the season and you're playing divisional opponents with Trevor Simeon, it gets a little hairier. And then that the new O-line, there were a bunch of new pieces. And 
just the continuity effect that you have between an offensive line. It's just one symbiotic being, those five men. It's so important that they they know where the other people are doing and what's going on. Football's a dance. Like you need the chemistry and like we're just coming off the Ravens. It's like, that just doesn't happen. That just doesn't click right off the bat. These are still human beings interacting with one another. It's not like Madden. Oh, I got offensive line full of like 85s and the 89s. They're going to protect me perfectly. And yeah, when we saw that, that, that vulnerability right off the, the bat with the Bengals. And one of the things I really think about, especially after that week two game, when they're, you start off 0-2 and there's tons of grave dancing on the Bengals in that week two, week three time period. Oh, they were a one-hit wonder. They weren't as good as they were last year. And then everyone was eating crow by, you know, week 10. Uh, and then everyone's like, ah, maybe this team actually is pretty good. Maybe it wasn't an aberration that they went to the Super Bowl. It's such an easy, cheap narrative. Just like, oh, it's the Super Bowl hangover. Like, hey, they made it to the Super Bowl, but he got sacked a hundred times. Like, how is this sustainable? So I, I get why people lumped on it, but have you seen the changes in the NFL? If you got hot, nasty speed at wide receiver and a quarterback who can get it there, and any semblance of coverage slash pass rush, like, mm-hmm. guess what? You're a top 10 team. To your point, I mean, like, pretty much the crown jewel of what every team wants in the league is if you can have a young elite quarterback and one, if not multiple, elite wide receivers, that's what you want. That's what you want. And the Bengals are filthy rich in those categories. I think that the best anecdote there is just looking at their base rates of passing and running and just situational stuff like they really just let Burrow unleash it like they were not cradling him in any such way and he's hurt and he's hurt and he's hurt I, I feel it's all like- according to plan makes me like the Bengals even more stirred up more uncertainty and there's more than enough enthusiasm across the market for the Browns and for the Ravens maybe there's a little bit of an opening in pricing because of this Burrow injury. We know this is going to be a good offense. They've done it in multiple ways, whether it's an explosive attack or just marching up and down the field. That in a division which has so many question marks really stands out. And at the end of the day, if you have a a good quarterback and two elite receivers, that's what wins in the NFL in 2023. I think you alluded to it earlier, Andy, as well, that like everything that we've talked about the other teams about lacking chemistry, this is a team that has chemistry. Yeah, and again, talking continuity too. He kept Callahan, he kept Anarumo. Good point by Dan there in the chat is the running game wasn't efficient, but you can't have it all. And if, you know, if I had to choose between passing game being what we had last year and having an efficient running game with a running back is probably on the downhill. And I mean, even he knows it apparently because he was willing to take a, a discount yeah, yeah. to continue to play here. The one thing I saw like about the Bengals and any team is how do you play versus the Chiefs? This kind of like anecdotal level of where do you stand in this league? And the Bengals play the Chiefs better than almost anybody on a consistent basis. And I think that speaks volumes in itself. Do you live bet, Andy? Oh, yeah. Did you see any of our clips of our game trade? Oh, yeah, no, here? for sure, for sure. You should definitely sometime this season hop oh, yeah. on. Games to... are you kind of targeting for that? Oh, we do just like, every just Sunday. Like, I know, but all of I, I'm trying to remember because I've watched it, but it's just like, yeah, you're just kind of all over the board. Oh, yeah. That's the joy of it. You start <clears> up <throat> at the beginning of the Sunday, ride it all the way through 
Sunday night football. It's extremely exhausting, but you're trying to follow all the games, trying to find the mispricings. Because sometimes it's just like, you guys know this, like, hey, I thought about it all week. Couldn't get on board with this team at minus three. And you watch a quarter of the game and like, I'm willing to bet this team minus 11 and a half right now. Exactly. Because you're paying. I I know where this is going and I don't care what the adjusted price is because it should be 20. Yeah, because you're paying a little bit of extra points for information. And information is the most valuable thing. And we do that all the time where we're not going to bet this pregame. Like we need to see XYZ. And if XYZ starts to materialize, I'll take a price that's a touchdown worse because this is our expected game script. And I much rather know this information and pay a premium than to not know that information and get my face ripped off because it goes completely sideways. And you hit on something I've been toying with. I think that's one of my biggest goals going into a Sunday. Like I'm going into a game show with this, but like a list of questions. But it it is just like, here's, but yeah, it's just like, I need these things answered. And if I get a strong answer one way or the another, that's where the live bets are coming from. Yeah. You're basically saying, how much am I willing to pay for this piece of information? This is something we did. Actually having outlining it, where would I quit on this team is particularly valuable because like we have such a tendency to hang on to our priors on a team and not holding on to a sinking ship and and outlining exactly the criteria by which you will quit is super valuable at the live betting. The other thing is certain teams have particular rhythms. The one thing that we talked about ad nauseum last season is scripted plays. And it's like, oh, the Titans are really good at scripted plays, but otherwise not good. They're going to score a touchdown on their first drive. So if I want to fade the Titans, like, why the hell would I do it pregame? Let, let them score their touchdown and then I'll fade them and I'll get a way better price for it. Like, it's foolish to bet pregame if you have conviction in certain things playing out in game. Yeah, game state can flip awful quick. I think pre-game betting is way more of a true gambling element. You are betting on things with like very limited information. And once the game starts, information starts coming in. And then that's when you can tactically exploit mispricings of that information. It hasn't adjusted properly. You have to be fast. You have to process information quickly. There's far more skill, in my opinion, maybe I'm biased, but far more skill involved in successfully trading a game as it's playing out and picking off prices. Plus, it's like way more fun. It is way more fun, but you know, a lot of the stuff I'm taking is Sunday night stuff where it's like, guess what? we're attacking this because this is just wrong. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the other end of the spectrum. Like, hey, these openers are bad. We're going to get like an instant two points in this total. Why wouldn't I do this right now? Because then it's just kind of long-term trading. You can always get your way back out of that during the week if it does move in your favor. Mm -hmm. Good stuff, guys. We wrapped it up. Had a nice chat at the end about live betting. Andy, definitely hope to have you on Game Trade at some point in time this season. We'll see you next week. And that's Closing Bell.